This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, June 27th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Senate health care reform law is now inaccurate on all four parts of its title. It's not endorsed by a majority of senators who can't really call it the Senate's law. It's not a law. We know that. Mitch McConnell is going to delay his vote on it. And it's not really health care reform. It's more about taxes. The vote was postponed. We don't know what that means. But I want to point out one oddity that's been going on in the debate around the bill. Someone decided that a good talking point is how much it does or doesn't help opioid addicts. There is a disproportionate attention paid to that health problem. Here is Republican Senator Lamar Alexander, a bill supporter. It ends the tax on individuals who choose not to buy insurance. It provides more money for hospitals who serve low-income Tennesseans who don't have insurance. There's new funding for opioid abuse. And opioid abuse is a rampant epidemic in our state. Okay, he's trying to say, don't worry, this bill will help opioid users. Here's Rob Portman, Republican senator of Ohio, doesn't really support the bill. He talked about opioid users as well. In my own state, we have a big concern over the expanded Medicaid population, mm-hmm. because given particularly the opioid issue, the, you know, the addiction, heroin, prescription drugs, now fentanyl, this is the first payer. Uh, it's the largest payer. About 50% of the cost of expanded Medicaid in Ohio is being used simply for substance abuse and mental health treatment. So we've got to be sure we aren't pulling the rug out from under those folks. And I think we can do that. I looked up the statistics on this. Opioids are a big problem. They kill 28,000 people a year. But pancreatic cancer kills 42,000 people a year. Now, I know opioids are new and pancreatic cancer has been around for a while. And another factor might be pancreatic cancer gets you really quick. There's almost no cure for it. It has something like a 95% death rate. And with opioids, It might take time to kick. You could get on it. You could get off it. So more people might be concerned about it than all the relatives of those with pancreatic cancer who probably have gone in a hurry. Still, it seems that opioid addiction has become something other than another medical ailment that this bill or any healthcare does or doesn't fix. It has become a talking point. And what I find is that either Democrats or Democratic senators or just advocates of the bill or clever interviewers know that you can throw opioids in the lap 
of a GOP senator who might be from a state with bad opioid addiction, and they might stammer for a solution. You, Senator from West Virginia or Kentucky or Ohio, you're going to vote for this bill, but look at its opioid funding. But why doesn't anyone say this on pancreatic cancer or brain tumors? Yes, I know brain tumors only kill 17,000 people a year. But is it just too boring to list all the many, 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 many health ailments that we knew about more than 10 years ago, that the bill also would stop funding for some people? It's weird. It's also bad. It's definitely bad. I want to point that out too. In the spiel, the calamitizing, the catastrophizing of all issues currently before the U.S. government. But first, Anne Helen Peterson is back. She is BuzzFeed's cultural correspondent. And what is a more sizzling nexus of where the culture is in America than the hamlet of Missoula, Montana. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As goes Missoula, so goes Bismarck. Actually, that's not true. Bismarck is still pretty stuck behind the trends in Missoula. Anne Helen Peterson of BuzzFeed will be moving to Montana to cover politics there. You know the encomia, plural of encomium, that uh, journalists need to go to where the people are, where the voters are, to the interior. That's the best way to cover our fellow citizens and doing it. So someplace like Montana, which people hold up as Trump country, mm-hmm. where he won by 20 percent, most of those people don't like Trump. Yeah. Also, they don't like Hillary. Also, the number one state where they Google impeachment per capita. You knew that, <laughs> really? right? No. Yeah, yes. Seth Stevens Davidovitz wow. found that out because the liberals within Montana and Alaska and some other states that you might not think, definitely more than New York, the liberals are like really impassioned there. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I know about the impassioned liberals in Montana, but I think it's also there are a lot of libertarians who think that Trump is the worst and, you know, it's a strongly libertarian place. Yeah. But yeah, the sentiment was not pro-Trump so much as it's anti-Hillary. Why do you want to live in Montana, not just uh, do a toe touch well, and report so back for a dispatch from there? I'm from Idaho. And when I go to the Western states and report there, First of all, people will talk to me. I like flash my license and then I like say some shit about New York. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And there's a reticence to talk to national media there and in a lot of places in the United States just because national media get things wrong a lot. They're very reductive. They don't have any sort of understanding of context or confluence of things that make people behave and say the things that they do. Uh I spent two and a half weeks there in the lead up to the Montana special election, two different trips. And I mean, I was really happy. Just, you know, some this is part of just when you get out of New York, you're like, "Ah." but it also like reporting felt really invigorating in a way. Sometimes when you report, you're like, everything is hard and I'm scared all the time. (laughs) <laughs> and or nervous, like you just feel sick to your stomach all the time. And I just wanted to talk to every single person that I met. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of stories that illuminate larger tensions in the United States that are emanating from 
the Mountain West spreading out into, you know, Washington, Oregon, North Dakota, South Dakota that aren't getting told. But specifically moving there, there's just something that happens when you live there. All of our newspapers used to have regional bureaus for a reason. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of different publications are trying to reinstate some of that model. Also, homes are $20,000. That's a good thing. <laughs> for the, the amount that I pay for rent in Brooklyn, I'm going to have like a six-bedroom house. Yeah. Or as you call it, you know, six studios where you <laughs> knock down the wall. Um, where were you when Ben Jacobs got tossed? I was driving by. Yeah? So I was driving at that time from Billings, which is on the eastern part of the state, over to Missoula. I was following the Quist campaign, so the opponent. And... I was in the car and then like stopped at a rest stop right outside of Bozeman, which is where Gianforte was, and saw Twitter. And I was like, I was driving by when this happened. What do you know of Gianforte? A did, lot. did it surprise you? I mean, it's shocking, so of course, but did he seem to have a temper and lash out at reporters? Uh, there was a general consensus that he was not good with the press. And that was, yeah, but this was evident for before that, you know, he was very, and especially female reporters, which is interesting, but there's this very well-respected Montana public radio reporter, and he was pretty combative with her on air. And, you know, people knew, his team knew, and political observers in the state, which there's like an incredible Montana blogosphere. It's really Mm -hmm. interesting, political blogosphere. Uh, People in the state knew that that's why the campaign was keeping him pretty out of sight. You know, the reason that this Guardian reporter wanted, like, was pressing him for a question is because they would not allow access to anyone. Yeah. You know, not only did they refuse, like, I emailed, you know, several times, but if you were at an event, they wouldn't, they didn't publicly announce when the events were going to be. You couldn't track them. And so what was happening is people were kind of, like, were forced to become pretty stealth in trying to get access. Yeah. Which is becoming the norm for a lot of GOP Candidates, not just during candidacy, but people push back against Gianforte's good friend, Steve Daines, who's the senator, one of the senators, that, you know, he won't hold a town hall. It's all teletown halls. And they say that's because of distance, but really it's because he doesn't want to be in proximity to his constituents. I covered the race between Conrad Burns and John Tester. Oh, really? Yeah. Not, I wasn't there. I didn't live there. I was there for maybe a week. Yeah. Uh, went to a couple of debates. I know the, I think the Montana public radio reporter yeah. you're talking about. But Conrad Burns was, he's now, he got beat by Tester. He had a great relationship with the press. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, and it's, there's other Republicans who in the state who who are very friendly with the press. And, you know, I met with a bunch of different Republican state legislators. It's more that this different style of Republican, yeah. which is exemplified by Danes and Gianforte, it's a more conservative than Montana general politics than they don't want to engage in the same sort of way. I think, and they don't want to reach across the aisles. Yeah, tell which me, is if a this, big Montana thing. Uh, yeah, I think all those, a lot of those sparsely populated states, everyone has to get along with everyone, even if they're, you know, if if it's an overwhelmingly Republican state. But I first saw this with Sarah Palin, and to be mm. a politician in Alaska used to mean, you know, mostly Republicans ran, but especially in Wasilla, you're just 
dealing right. with uh, funding the hockey arena. But she seemed more influenced by Sean Hannity than yes. Alaska politics. And I think these guys are more influenced by sort of national Republican talking points, Fox News, than what a regular Montana Republican has been for 100 years. Totally. Absolutely. And I think you, in Alaska, like Murkowski is still that old school Alaska mm-hmm. style. Because she descends from her yes. father and he had to do it that way. Yeah. And she's yeah. very popular in Alaska. Yeah. But very unpopular nationally. Like I, all these Republicans are like, oh, that Murkowski swing vote, you know, <laughs> that she's, oh, she's actually advocating for her constituents. Yeah. She has a totally different <laughs> set of problems than you do yeah. with the cost of health care in Alaska. Right. Well, and, you know, this was something that Gianforte, like, there's a reason why he refused to publicly comment on the House bill. It's because Obamacare has done a tremendous amount for rural populations, yeah. even conservative rural populations. Like, it is a much more popular bill in Montana than other places. If you're advocating for your citizens in Montana, then you would have to consider that, like how many people's health care has been dramatically affected by the expansion of rural hospitals and how will that be taken away? You know, one thing that we hear is especially Republican voters are voting against their self-interest. Mm. You know, what they're voting for is tax cuts for millionaires. Do you think Montana voters are voting against their self-interest most of the time when they vote for national Republicans? Hmm. It's a good question. Like, if you look at the way that the race was framed in Montana, there was some healthcare stuff, but it was mostly about public lands. Like, public lands was the defining question of the things that they talk about in interviews, the way that they advertised. There's also guns, but guns is in the Mountain West, it's always guns. But public lands is something that has a real everyday effect on both. Uh, conservatives who, you know, might live in the more rural parts of the state and liberals who live in the more populated parts of the state, but make use of those public lands right. and live in Montana because of the glory of those public lands. But does the National Democratic Party have a bad policy for Montanans or is no. it just perceived as such? No, it's, it, uh, you know, I think that they also vote on personality. Yes. <laughs> like, I mean, that's not unique to Montana. And so who seems to represent? But that's the thing is Quist was so much more Montanan, like Gianforte. People did not like Gianforte. I think a lot of people who even voted for Gianforte did not like him. People who voted for him did tell me. They said, I don't like him. So the big dif- differentiation was what, the R next to his name and what the R meant in terms yeah. of those issues of, of guns and land? Yeah, I think so. I think a lot of people maybe heard the idea that there would be more gun control or that the other thing with Quist in particular, and again, this is getting into the nitty gritty, but like the Gianforte campaign did a very good job of showing that like Quist had a checkered past of paying his bills, which tax, tax problems. If you are a small business owner, that resonates in a very strong way. I, you know, it's funny. Like I think there's no easy way to talk about the ideal Montana voter and how they Montanans think of themselves as mm-hmm. voters, which is very much we are purple, like we are independence. Yeah. And then what actually happens in the ballot box. Right, right. We're independents as long as uh, the Democrat looks like... John Tester. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, maybe we'll accept a John Tester with 10 fingers, but yeah. probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Do you give any truck to the argument that because Gianforti uh, body slammed Ben Jacobs, it actually helped them because they're manly and rugged and they understand assaults? No too? way. No. No way. No. I think there They're was just something for Laura. I think almost, you know, almost everyone I talked to, both sides were really grossed out by what happened. 
um, and a ton of the ballots had already been cast. Yeah. One question that made me think a lot was, if this was the Democratic candidate and he did this, would that actually change your vote? Yeah. Like if you, you know, talk to some a liberal in Missoula and the, the Democratic candidate did this, would that be enough to make you vote for Gianforte? Probably not. Right. You'd probably stay home. Right. Because so many of the votes had already been cast, I think the election had already been cast. Maybe it depends what the outlet was. If he tossed someone from Fox News, maybe the liberals would like it. Negative yeah. partisanship is pretty rampant in America. Right. Yeah. I mean, the thing that was crazy to me is, you know, Fox, the, the local Fox affiliate, like they said, look at this is what happened. Without them confirming it, it might have been one of these horrible, totally. he said, he said, specters in American politics. Well, and, but there were people in Montana who were saying, I don't buy this. Like, yeah. even with the audio. Yeah. We're like, we need more, you know, we need to hear more. <laughs> we need a few dozen hearings. Maybe we get Trey Gowdy on that. Yeah. yeah. But the Guardian the Guardian point is a, is a good one. That like, oh, this like, you know, not only is it a national outlet, but it's also like, that's the UK. Yes, even. national, not even our nation. <laughs> well, and there, there was a lot of mixed emotions about having Montana in the spotlight in the way that it did. Oh. Like, so when I announced that I was going to Montana, I got like at least 50 comments that were like, get a bodyguard. You know, and the thing is, is I did not feel one second of animosity from anyone, either side, the entire time I was there. And this is the idea that people theoretically dislike the press. Yeah. But they don't actually they're not going to do anything to reporters. Yeah. In the in Trump rallies, people are lovely to you. Yes. But when they when he points the camera and does his thing of reporters in the pen, they all scream. It's very cathartic. Right. Right. This, is, this is another confounding thing about America. People are actually lovely on a personal level. Yes. For the most part. Yeah. You just get them collectively. Well, and especially and they... if you're like in, in a place like Montana or a Trump rally, if you are a white person with blonde hair and blue eyes, which is how I look, <laughs> it's very easy for me to be like, I just want to tell your part of the story. And then they tell me. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? I've also interviewed black reporters who mm-hmm. have bad things, but they all also like almost an overcompensation. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yes. It's a, such it's a fraught encounter but mm-hmm. not because of like it's anyone wants to beat anyone up it's right. because like i want to prove to you i'm not racist and helen peterson is a culture writer at buzzfeed she will continue to do so in montana her book is too fat too slutty too loud the rise and reign of the unruly woman thank you Anne. thank you Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And now the spiel, calamitizing everything. The other day on a show, Left, Right, and Center, and this was soon after the shooting of the Republican baseball team members, the host of that show, Josh Barrow, used a phrase that jumped out at me. Here it is. Isn't there a risk that sort of catastrophizing about policy will will tend to make the electorate more extreme and feel more desperate? I mean, catastrophizing over policy. 
catastrophizing everything. I knew exactly what he meant, but if you don't, he went into a little more depth. I mean, you saw for years Republicans talking about Obamacare, not in terms of a bill that's going to raise taxes and raise the cost of health care for some people and lower it for others. And I think it's going to have these negative effects on these kind of people, but rather talking about it as uh, as Senator Ben Sass from Nebraska said, arguably one of arguably the worst law in our history, the worst law in history. Well, that's what Ben Sass was saying a few years ago. Now, Bernie Sanders is saying a very similar thing about Trump care. Not history, just the rather large portion of history that he was part of. The House passed bill, Chris, is the worst piece of legislation by far that I have seen in my lifetime. The worst law since he's been alive. Public law 503 passed in 1942. That was the law that signed off on FDR's executive orders in turning the Japanese. So this is worse than that. What about the Gulf of Tonkin resolution? Is it that that was a resolution and he's talking about legislation? I wonder if there is a uh, fine difference between those two. I take his point about this law being very bad for citizens. I have read the CBO report. I do know that 22 million people will lose their health care over 10 years. And I do know that is dire. And when we're talking about losing health care, of course, we'll have very devastating outcomes. I also concede that talking about the law as if it's this bad is A, kind of justified, but B, really effective. However, just something to think about. The dark ages that we're sending America back to, you know, when clans fought for meager provisions and blood ran in the streets. This terrible Senate law resets the clock back to 2009. That was before the Obamacare went into effect. Now, 2009 wasn't good. There were lots of stories about all the people who couldn't have health care and they died. And there are fewer of those stories, something like 10 million fewer people who don't have insurance, or if you take into account the Medicare expansion, it comes out to, you know, helping 20-something million people. And I'll also say this, I'll concede this point, that the Medicare rollbacks would be bad and maybe worse than that point in time I pointed to, 2009. So is that calamitizing? Is that catastrophizing? I think it is catastrophizing. I think on this point, the defense of Sanders would be, well, it's a legitimate catastrophe or calamity. But I can think of other examples of things we just take as true now that are maybe overblown or at least examples of catastrophizing. I don't want to just go back in time and compare the state of things now to the state of things as they were. I want to go laterally. So let's talk about, when we talk about how bad our government is and how we're at each other's throats and what a blood sport things are, The administration certainly epitomizes that. But you know who the least popular cabinet member is? It's not the president. He's not doing well. It's not even Bannon. It's not even Kellyanne Conway, technically not a cabinet member. The least popular, according to polls, person in the administration is Betsy DeVos. Now, I understand Betsy DeVos had a terrible confirmation hearing. She is probably not qualified or suitable for her job. She has no personal connection to public education, except maybe for hating it. So Betsy DeVos has a lot going against her. Yet, if you look at the amount of opining against her and hand-wringing about it, and you compare it to how powerful her actual department is, well, let's put it this way. The amount of catastrophizing that we're doing around Betsy DeVos is entirely disproportionate to an actual catastrophe that is ongoing right here in my city. This is going to get boring. I'm going to use a phrase, local control. Here I go. The mayor of New York City 
has been granted local control of the Department of Education by the state legislature. You're still with me? Thank you. God bless you. So I know you don't want to hear about this. But if I ask you, if I ask mo- most people or in your town, hey, who is in charge of the schools? Who has a big say in the schools? You might say the mayor. Who has a big say in New York City schools? Oh, that's the mayor, right? Well, no, not unless the legislature gives him that say. And years ago, he didn't have the say. There were all these boards of education. They were corrupt. It was terrible. And then about a decade ago, he lost control temporarily, but it was fixed. But right now in the legislature, the Republicans are saying we're not going to give control of the schools to the mayor who should have control of the schools unless he builds more charter schools. (laughs) Democrats aren't much better. In fact, in the New York state legislature, Democrats are a lot worse. But here's the thing. The issue of the mayor controlling schools is so much more important than anything Betsy DeVos has done or probably will do. Now, you may be saying, ah, but New York City's only one city and she controls all the Department of Education. It's true. The Federal Department of Education has a bigger budget, but it's not that much bigger. New York City's budget is $30 billion and the Trump administration is looking to cut the federal budget for the Department of Education to under $60 million. And yet I think that Betsy DeVos occupies more than two, something like 10 times the amount of catastrophe gray matter in our brains, even as New Yorkers. New Yorkers who worry about education are so much more worried about Betsy DeVos than they are what's going on in their own schools. I remember after the election, one podcast I listened to, The Weeds, either Ezra or Matt Iglesias made a very good point. And those guys don't sound like, I just forgot which one it was. And they were saying, you know, a consequence of the election, one thing I would like is for citizens, yes, they should be active. Yes, they should be involved in government. But they should also know that government isn't just the federal government. How many people who took part in those marches can't even name their own representative, can't even name their own state senator or state representative? That was true for me, by the way. I looked at, as soon as they said it, I looked it up. I said to myself, I know Yvette Clark, but who's the other one in the state house? And I can't name her right now on the top of my head. I feel terrible about this. But we spend way too much time catastrophizing about the federal government as opposed to the effects on local government. So the last the last bit of catastrophizing is Donald Trump. Oh, bad. Oh, he's so bad. I mean, look at the approval polls. He's setting records, negative records for how disapproved he is. There was even a silver lining-ish story today that 158 days into his presidency, Trump's approval, 39.5%, is actually better than Gerald Ford's approval at 34.8%. That said, his disapproval was much higher. And when they do the net approval or disapproval, Trump sits at negative 15.7 net approval and Ford was only at negative 0.6. But the thing, the guy who seems to have improved is George W. Bush. You know, George W. Bush's approval rating in retrospect keeps going up. And we even heard Nancy Pelosi mistake Trump for George W. Bush and say something like, I don't think I'd ever say it, but I miss the days of George W. Bush. I want to say this here and I want to say this now. I want to get this on the record. As of now, we're 158 days into his presidency. And Bad things can happen. George W. Bush was a much worse president than Donald Trump has been. In actual effect, in actual, well, just look at lives lost. Until Donald Trump kills thousands of American soldiers and airmen and seamen abroad, you cannot compare the guy to George W. Bush. George W. Bush, war in Afghanistan, has killed 2,386. Not all on Bush's watch, and if you want to be really 
charitable to him, you could say perhaps any president would have engaged in a war in Afghanistan. However, the war in Iraq, total war of choice, not even talking about the Iraqi civilian casualties, not even talking about the billions of dollars that it cost, possibly trillions over time, 4,400 Americans dead, 32,000 wounded. Donald Trump has not done that. Donald Trump has not killed 4,400 Americans. So let us remember that. Let us keep the calamity in perspective. And let us think this about George W. Bush. He is a kinder, nicer, more genteel, better-mannered person than Trump was. He does not represent all the negatives of personality or a referendum on America that Trump does. But compared to George W. Bush, Donald Trump is actually much less calamitous. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Chris Berube. He's looking to move to Montana, but just for the annual Gianforte toss. Chris does not understand subject and object of that event. Mary Wilson, Gist producer, you know her as the cattle queen of Montana. But a breakaway faction of her radicalized ocean-faring brethren threatens her reign. Watch it all on Game of Cow Thrones. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He worries that accounts receivable in Billings Municipal Government could be the Department of Billings of Billings. The gist, Evil Knievel, David Lynch, Phil Jackson, all from Montana, three renegades who saw the world as no others had, one of whom really, really is going to ruin the Knicks. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.